0: They only played one minute of it and they said that I was dissing Eminem and they only skewed the part that made it sound that way. There was no mention of this is a guy who's praying for him, this is a guy who's a Christian. It was none of that. my name
1: is KJ, a, KJ, five, two. All right.
2: Welcome back to Labeled, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter, and today we're going to delve into BEC Recordings, the CCM imprint of Tooth & Nail. And if you don't know what CCM stands for, it's... Christian contemporary music, and I know you know what that is and some of its connotations. Now, BEC was spawned as Brandon and the label had wild success with bands like the Supertones, and that money was then used to develop more bands and newer sounds and newer genres, and BEC was an obvious and logical extension of what Tooth & Nail was doing that would help them grow and serve that fan base and also to collect a talented and cohesive staff that would work BEC artists, but as well as the Tooth and Nail and Solid State rosters. Now in some ways, these are totally separate worlds, but there's more overlap than you may think, and KJ52 is a good example of that. He's a fun character with some slightly different taste and goals than, let's say, Living Sacrifice or Starflyer 59 but I think they may have more in common than it would first appear now KJ knows a good bit about both worlds and hearing him share some of these great stories and his experience and his relationships there I think will be very helpful to us in folding the BEC into the tooth and nail story so now let me introduce you to KJ 52 2
1: fishes, what a boy gave so I what I had and I just did the same Put all in his hands and I just walked away I said Lord it's all yours you can have the whole thing I know what I bring so let's just talk about right at the
2: beginning of this thing i want to hear about how you got into tooth and nail and your favorite stuff in the catalog and and con- yeah. connect all this world and we don't do a ton of stuff about bec on this podcast yeah, It's because I have less familiarity with it, less relationships, less stuff like that. I think it's very interesting, and there is so much to talk about in the BEC world, but I haven't figured out how to get in over there or tell the story. I don't know it as, as natively. Um, but I know you a little bit and thought we could have a really good conversation and the stuff that's been in your book, the, your books yeah. on Spotify is called what happened. I've been listening to it. It's so much yeah. good stuff in there that brings up a ton of interesting things for me, but really my angle here to be clear with everybody is that I would like to point out how BEC solid state, everything all the way from Pedro the lion, all the way to, to Jeremy camp is all in the same umbrella. And so yes. to me, I'm not as interested in how are we different? Cause it's pretty obvious, but there's it's kind of more the same as my suspicion and then after listening to your book and yes. thinking about it a little bit more i'd like to try to put that together we'll point out the differences along the way too but that's kind of my aim on on this combo if it makes sense
0: matt you are spot on um and it's funny because i i certainly was very familiar with tooth and nail way well be, way before i even signed with them uh especially down being down here in florida um i used to hang with a lot of guys that were in the hardcore scene you know in florida always had a really good hardcore straight edge
1: uh scene.
0: You know, I, down where I live in Southwest Florida, uh, this guy ran a zine called Outcast. He would bring over, you know, Strong Arm when they were starting off. Um, he brought in the prayer chain. You know, and he very much catered to that culture. And I actually grew up in a neighborhood called Ebor City, which in a lot of ways is like ground zero of the death metal scene. Um, and so, you know, I mean, like I can remember going to those type of concerts, even though I was not never really in that scene. To me, those kids were like the theater kids that I hung out with or the goth kids. You know, there was always like a, a really interesting connection that I had. So I was very familiar. In fact, I, I used to joke about this with Brandon. I called in to a radio show that he was on, I think it was like maybe 95, 96. And he was just being interviewed. And I, I asked him on the, on the air, I said, would you ever sign a hip hop group? And he was like, nah, I'm not gonna do that. (laughs) 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 He's like, at least not right now. And so, you know, I mean, like when I was starting off, I was just looking for any opportunity to get on a label. And um, so you're right. BC honestly was just a creation. It was the same 21 employees, whether it was solid state tooth and nail, uh, that's why I love your podcast because all the people you're talking about, like I work with them directly, constantly. You know, he had these divisions, solid state, mm-hmm. tooth and nail, B, C.
2: So my understanding of you, the way that I want to think about you here, is to me when I'm when I hear your story and think about it, the way you've been DIY and that you have principles that kind of undergird all the things that you do and philosophies. They may be different yes. ones than some of the other bands have. I, th- I consider you like a more of a renegade, more of a DIY person, more. And I think you identify this yes. way too, but as an outsider, even in your own scene and in this scene. Yes. Yes. And there may be a perception that BEC or Christian stuff is like this in group or this easy world where you do X, Y, and Z and it's just safe and all that stuff. But I don't hear that in your story at all. I hear you. Going against no. the grain, having it difficult, sleeping on floors, uh, yes. making sacrifices for stuff, and you just have different sometimes objectives than maybe what yes. I'd have or some of the other the, you know tooth and nail or solid state bands would have.
0: Yes, and to be honest, man, very early in my career, I realized there was more of a life in rolling with the rock guys than there was with the hip hop dudes. I mean, the mm-hmm. Christian hip hop scene or the you know indie hip hop scene was just so tiny and so struggling for any relevance. I made a choice very early on to. To tour with those guys to hang with those guys to work with those guys and to completely forge a, a completely different path a new path because absolutely a new path and, and to be honest with you like those bands that we're talking about or would be talking about um they were infinitely easier to get along with than guys in my genre mm-hmm. uh and i just found more success in those worlds and i i i made a, a point very early to go i'm just gonna approach myself as music i'm not trying to Um, be this Christian hip-hop like Uh flag-bearer. I'm going to get in anywhere I can fit in. And a a few key moments changed that perspective, but the point being is all these bands that you're talking about, I connected with them very well.
2: So tell me what is your main principle that you do music, you do hip-hop, you clearly love it, it's an art form and all that stuff, but you have a slightly different, and maybe it's true with some BEC stuff or not, you have a principle that seems very dedicated toward sharing Christ, and, and that seems to be universal and hasn't changed over the years.
0: Yes, very true, very true. Um, I think I was way more dogmatic about it in the beginning. I think now I've found a lot more space just for art for art's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think probably what my catharsis was when I just said, I will be who I am 100%. So there is a part of me that is very much a ministry type of guy. Like I was a former youth pastor. I don't separate that from my music. But then there's a part of me that just wrote songs for the sake of songs. I've opened up for every major mainstream band, you know, rap group back in the day, from a Wu-Tang to a tribe called Quest. You know, I hold a Guinness World Record for freestyling. You know, these things aren't necessarily ministry things. Um, I've just found a very, uh, uh, just a very peace about who I am and letting that be reflected.
3: But ministry uh, seems but right.
0: to be
2: your main fuel, especially in totally. the early years, because yes. why were you doing all that hard? And and help me understand what it was like from your view. Like you didn't just walk in as this large no. Christian artist that gets paid all this no. money and types of things like nope. that. Tell me about the early years and how it was ministry that fueled you and gave you the, whatever, the, that desire to do the dirty, the hard, the unappreciated, Tell, let's let's converge there.
0: You, you're absolutely right. And, and look, I was the guy who didn't grow up in church, Got saved, went, you know, 300 percent with it and looked at music or hip hop as a means to an end. So that's it. You're right. I hit the road. It was about reaching people, uh, whatever that platform was, whether that was a club, whether that was a skate park, whether that was a church. And I didn't really try to differentiate. I just was grateful for any platform.
2: So, you were having shows that were bad, except for you thought they were good if it went well in a ministry capacity. You talk a little bit about having a show for yes. five people. It's eight people to yes. get saved.
0: There were so few slots to jump into. So, anything I could take, I would take. I had to, uh, to suck it up, see the bigger picture.
2: And you didn't have any label support. So, you were just doing this as an actual independent DIY artist who had a ministry bent and was just trying to figure out however to do it.
0: Well, I got signed, and, and those initial tours I did, I was signed. I just got dropped within six months. I mean, honestly, I I, I was a guy, I was an inner-city youth officer. I had a bunch of, you know, housing project kids. I had a dream to do the music. I got the record deal thing that never happens, where you send in a demo and somebody finds it. And, you know, lived my dream, living in Nashville, working on the first debut album, dropping the album, and then just having no place to go play. And the only thing was, was this thing called the Extreme Tour. So I booked shows from Florida all the way out to the Northwest, tried to do whatever I could. And in you know a typical fashion that you hear a lot of times, the label was owned by a mainstream company and what they spent versus what they sold was upside down. And I don't care what kind of ministry he does, drop them.
2: Let's talk about that story a little bit.
0: Yeah. Well, it was provident. I mean, I was, I was uh, essentially being quartered by goatee through my man, Todd Collins. Um, and then I floated for six months. They, and then eventually they just, they just wouldn't sign me. They went with John Rubin over me.
1: The to be the and, the <laughs> and Todd
0: so unselfishly, you know, gave me over to, Uh Provident, which was Essential, which at the time was Third Day and Jars of Clay and those type of bands. And they just wanted to jump into the hip-hop world. Uh, But I was an experiment. And in a lot of ways, I was a failed experiment. You know what I mean? They thought they thought boy bands and hip-hop was going to be the next big wave in Christian music. Mm -hmm. And certainly Christian hip-hop was not the next big wave. (laughs) But they signed a ton of people. And that's when you saw Uprock come out. You know what I mean? But yeah, within six months. I was, I got my letter. They're like, you're done. And that's when I really had to like go, what is this really about? I was initially being courted by Mm Goatee, Todd. And then that kind of dragged out no contract for six months. And then Todd's like, look, they're not going to sign you in. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm one of the owners, but Toby is going to go with somebody else. Oh, I see. And you know, he's like, so I found you another place and uh, Goatee was my dream, but it just didn't happen. And, um, But you know, so
2: then to Provident, and you were only on that six months. So when you got to Provident, you thought this is going to take off, and then you went out and had a small tour.
0: Absolutely. Well, it was it was a tour called the Extreme Tour, where it was just all rock bands, and I was the only headliner that would do you know the ministry piece or whatever. But it was just straight outreach. I mean, like you just roll into a skate park, you'd set up, you start doing music, and we'll see what happens. I mean, it was literally that. You know, I was in Pioneer Square in Seattle. I was right there in the middle of. You know, Portland, just with the sound system, just doing the best I could. Wow. You know, I mean, we were right there in, in the Northwest. And that was honestly a huge, massive switch up for me. Uh, I didn't know anything about the Northwest, never been there, didn't understand the culture. Um, and it was sink or swim. And, you know, I'm not making any money. I'm trying to sell my, you know, my album at an outreach. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then and then the label's like, you know, we tried, but you're done. And And I had to really figure out what my next move was going to be.
2: Wow. So that was a, a, a false start there. Did you think it was over? What, what, How did you get to tooth and nail? It, it...
0: I mean, uh, essentially, yeah. In some ways, I did feel it was over. It was one of those deals where I had to go dig deep and go, Did, did do I feel like God has actually called me to do this? And if that's the case, then, then the label will present itself in time. But I tried talking to at least five other Nashville labels, all the major labels had meetings, they came out to shows. I had a plan, you know, I had a very specific plan of what my next record was going to be like. I had Deer Slim in the back pocket, you know, like I had a very clear vision and none of them would touch me. They would be like, yeah, we just want to see what happens and mm-hmm. da, da, da And I was just getting the runaround. Tooth and Nail com- came completely out of left field. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, I was super skeptical. Um, I didn't know Brandon, but he had a bad reputation, at, at least amongst the people I knew. And I was like, yeah, I don't know, man. You know what I mean? Like, this this rock label that does alternative music. Brandon has a reputation of, of you know, ripping people off and all these things. And I, honestly, I found out all these things were really unfounded. But that was what was going through my mind. And he offered me a non-exclusive deal. He literally gave me the record deal that there was no way I could say no to.
2: Well, hang on a second um, here. That's pretty different, first of all. That's where. So, how yes. did you get? How did you get connected with Brandon? And we'll we'll talk about that. But non-exclusive, that's uh, very uncommon, yeah. and certainly not in the ripoff territory. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no. And and so I was working with a guy by the name of Blake Knight, uh, who was helping produce some of the songs on my second album, and he was in a group called Ill Harmonics, and they had been signed to Tooth and Nail. And uh, I, I honestly don't remember. I, I remember the conversation went like this. It was like hey, the artists on Uprock, the rap groups, aren't selling more than even 10,000 copies. Brandon can see that you've already done 20,000 copies and got dropped. He goes, by default, you're going to outsell anybody that's on the label. And the initial conversation was, I want a rapper who's not afraid to chase after mainstream success. And when I say mainstream, just meaning... Not trying to keep it real, just trying to sell some records and make my and make my music. He's like, I want. They, Brandon is looking for that type of artist, um, and he could not seem to turn the corner. And again, this is just my my secondhand conversation, but he couldn't turn the corner with Up Rock.
2: Okay, so one quick aside here. Uprock Records is an imprint that was specifically supposed to be hip-hop that Tooth & Nail started that KJ was originally going to be on. And that didn't quite work out, but that's not what we're here to cover today because KJ ultimately was in the BEC family. So maybe we'll get back to Uprock. I hope we can. There's some more story to tell there, but it doesn't quite belong in this episode.
0: He was sinking money into the artist, and it wasn't turning into sales. And he's like, look, if we just even do minimal effort with you, you're still going to outsell it. And I said, not only am I going to try to sell records, I got a full plan on what I want to do. So he came back with this non-exclusive deal that he literally said, if you want to go sign to somebody else at the same time, I'm totally fine with that. Here's the deal. That's it crazy. was a three-album deal. Exactly. I was like, who does this? I was like, nobody does this. I'm like, it would be foolish of me to say no. But even in the back of my head, I'm like, "Ah, I'm going to go get another deal with a Nashville label. And, and Tooth and & Nail did such a good job that for those next three albums... I could have gone somewhere else and I chose not to. Like they did such a great job that it was night and day compared to my Nashville experience.
2: And how many did you end up selling on those records? The well, the second that
0: that, this is what's again so funny about the whole situation, and I talk about it in my book, is that the first album did twenty thousand, second album did over a hundred thousand. Wow. And the same first label came back and tried to re-sign me. Wow. Which like you could do because it was
2: non exclusive.
0: Which I could do. And I turned them down, and they ended up re-putting out the same album again. And the same album came back and did like another seventy-five thousand records. Wow! So like, it was like mind-blowing. But I I realized very quickly that the Tooth and Nail way of doing things versus the Nashville way was night and day. Mm-hmm. And you know, I had seen how Nashville had overspent on everything, but I'm the one that ends up suffering. That's Whereas right. Tooth and Nail was like make quality records. Make them cheap. Make them cheap. And it really all—it's it, funny thing was it—it really came down to booking a hotel, and it was mind blowing. Whereas I would be stuck in a hotel with a Nashville label at full rate for a month, and it's just running up my budget. Whereas Tooth and Nail was the first label I'd ever heard of that would price line their hotels. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it wasn't like they were sticking me in the Motel Six. They mm-hmm. put me in a decent hotel, but they price line it, and it was so much more fiscally responsible that I thought, oh, of course. You know, yeah. Brandon again. To his credit, I would do a photo shoot, and he would go buy your clothes, and then he goes just return the ones you don't you don't wear.
2: Yeah, that point is very important to to realize that that Brandon and Tooth and Nail recognize this really big gap between what a major label is doing and its inefficiency, or giant labels, or you know yes. they're swinging for the fences looking for the multi platinum X Y or Z. Uh, and then yes. Brandon realized that the times had changed and it's possible to make a bunch of money selling tens of thousands of, of copies, if not hundreds of thousands, and then keep all the money. Yes. Now, that requires you be frugal. And then when you begin to yes. be frugal and have lower salaries and Priceline hotels and put pressure on for you know hundreds of dollars here or there, then it's not that hard to get a reputation, when, especially when you've sold hundreds of thousands or millions of records. It's not hard to get a reputation. Yes. But really, you're figuring out a new system to empower growth. Yes. And then even this whole BEC side, this is in the exact yes. time after Brands with the merger and he's trying experiments and he figures out many ways to maximize sales and money to utilize, to continue to grow the entire indie, Christian, this whole scene. He be, he's able to continue to do it um, at, by having his foot in a bunch of areas and optimizing them. And so you come along at just the right time to be part of that story.
0: Well, I didn't know that that you could do that. Like again, the excess and the decadence and the and the Nashville side was just—I thought that's the way you're supposed to do things, you know. And granted, it's the early 2000s, you know, like everybody's selling, you know, a jillion records, and we were, you know, they were owned by Jive, so it was like, you know, I'm up against Britney Spears. The problem was the pressure level was so high, like you had to come out the gate and do a hundred thousand records, whereas Tooth and Nail was like, they were—they basically said. If you just do what you did the last time, we have a success. Not a drop. You know? Yeah, it's a success. Not a The drop. same
2: number, same
0: fans, yeah. A- and the other thing that was interesting is that he was completely hands-off. Like Nashville was 300% trying to guide the conversation <laughs> on every angle without really knowing anything about hip-hop or CCM. And granted, Yuck. we were all trying to figure it out at the time. But I'm saying I had my AR, my the label head, everybody was at the photo shoot, everybody was trying to buy the clothes, everybody's trying to style you, everybody's trying to image you. Yep. Everybody kind of has an idea of what the music is supposed to sound like, but they're making it up as go along. Whereas Brandon was just more like, hey, I just want you to do a song with Aaron Sprinkle and I'm fine. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it was just a totally different approach. And, you know, and I, I was really blessed to have a guy by the name of Todd Collins in my corner who, again, was one of the goatee owners. But ended up still staying with me even when I got dropped, like he produced the records and, you know, he was able to, you know, help guide that ship in a lot of ways, too. So, again, I I would probably end up only talking to Brandon maybe once a year, if that, maybe twice a year.
2: That's it, yeah. He's always been hands-off, and like you said, he farms out things that he, to people that are talented that he trusts. Aaron Sprinkle is a good one. Brandon doesn't need yes. to give all the feedback on the songs if Aaron Sprinkle is working on it, you see? I mean, therefore, yeah. he gets to be hands-off, but he's completely hands-on in his development and selection. of Sprinkle is brilliant. Yes. Sprinkle's brilliant. You know that. So they're we're in good everybody's in good shape with minimal middle management so that's that's a big win for everybody artists and right but but let me
0: also say i didn't i didn't work with aaron till three records in so it was it was a little way down the road but when i did it actually became those songs i did with aaron ended up being some of the biggest songs i had done Mm -hmm.
2: that record was your 2000 what year was that you did with springle in 07 or something like that (laughs)
0: Uh the f- no the first one I did was with was with Aaron in 2005 I did a song called Are You Real, the featured cutlass.
1: I need to know that you're real, cause I'm struggling. You need to show that you're here, cause I'm stumbling. Show me that you care. This is why I'm saying this. All right.
3: looking at these things
1: in a different way I saw life through God's eyes and it wasn't the same. I just
0: remember I like I walked in and Aaron was passed out on the couch like I'm like okay I guess this can be a different kind of session <laughs> like he had been up all night working and I never forget he was like and I and he kind of rolled out and he's like rubbed his eyes and he was like let's get some coffee and I remember looking at him thinking like this guy kind of looks like frodo baggins like he just reminded me of like this <laughs> this 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 tiny man with this just incredible music knowledge and I connected with him immediately. And I just remember we were both super tired and burnt out, and we just sat there.
2: So then you wind up being part of the Tooth & Nail family. So, you know, I love asking people this, this uh, question, though, but what Tooth & Nail catalog songs are impactful or became impactful for you?
0: Yeah, uh, Stephen Christian booked me for a show in, like, 96, way before he became Amber Lynn. He used to run this little club in Winterhaven, And I remember when he did a cover of The Cure's uh Dang it! I can't remember which cover he did. It was uh, one of the top five Cure songs. Anyway, that song was huge. I never heard somebody reinterpret a Cure song like that. Even though I wasn't a massive Cure fan, I just knew the music, and I knew the kids that like were, you know, into that. Uh, and I always loved his tone. Like, for me, it was like meeting TFK when they first started. Um, You know, one of the songs that they did actually really impacted a childhood friend whose marriage had been broken up. And because of that song, it actually helped put their marriage back together. And it was at a TFK concert that I was opening up for. I got to introduce them to them.
2: What TFK song? So
0: it was called uh, I Wish You Well. And it was one of those deals where they had actually been divorced and... The ex-husband and the wife had both been listening to the same song on the radio. And it was this really sad song about like, hey, we've broken up, but I wish you well. And ironically, they're both listening to it, thinking of each other. Uh, The person I'm talking about was a girl that I had known since I was really young. I said, why don't you come to the show? TFK is going to be there. And that became, that was their first date. That eventually led to their remarriage.
1: Because you never know
3: when it's going to fall down on you. I wish you well, I wish you well On this trip to find yourself I wish you well, wish I could help But I can't help you find yourself
0: And I thought this is bizarre because like you hear stuff about their own music, but to know that like your friend helps that happen, help that happen. Um, so like just to, to see that to see that that connection stuff like that. I mean, you know, me and Jeremy Camp got signed like right around the same time. I remember being in you know Brandon's Benz, and he's like, I I found this guy, check it out. And I thought this dude is going to be a whole new level for for Tooth and Nail.
3: Every time I fall down on my face. My shame. Well, to know that you are everything I need you to be you're my help and
1: time me what year was that that was '02.
0: 2 that was when he first flew me out and I'm I, I'll be honest with you man I'm, I'm a lyric guy I'm a lyric guy and I'm a groove guy so like I want to hear what you're saying and I want to understand it. so a lot of the times some of the tooth and nail music was just so abstract, I didn't understand you know what the content was about. And I understand it's a different type of vibe. Give me an example
2: of something you didn't get that other people were liking.:
0: You mean like like a song you mean that yeah I did a, a, like?
2: an artist on tooth and nail that you didn't understand, vibe with, like that like you're saying.
0: Well, honestly, it was like 90% of them. I mean, like, you know, it would it would be like, like I knew Ryan because he would do my covers. He was the most, I didn't know he was Demon Hunter. You know, I just knew he's like the phenomenal graphic designer guy. Mm-hmm. He's sweet, soft-spoken. And then Demon Hunter is like our winter of oppression. You know, I'm like, what? I don't, Like, I'm like, Summer what? I I'm totally, conv- yeah, Summer of Darkness. I'm like, he seems so normal and nice. I'm like, are you really going through this much pain? You know, like, and the titles were always these really abstract titles and like, Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just, I didn't, I didn't understand. So like, even just the fact that, you know, screamo music, like you're literally screaming. Uh... I can't understand what you're saying. I get the music is for, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an energy and a vibe and it's a release, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's really less lyric driven per se, but I just, as a, as an MC, I want to know what you're saying and how you're saying it and saying it in a way that's creative. Um, again, not that those aren't, I just call, you know, maybe that's just my pop leanings. Sure. So something like a Jeremy camp where, it is very straightforward. It is very graspable. It has a little bit of creative twinge to it. Uh, may, maybe that makes me a pop sellout. I'm okay with that. What's your favorite <laughs> Jeremy Camp?
2: What What's a Jeremy Camp song for people to go? I don't think I like that though. You know, it's cheesy or something. Yeah, what, what, I get point it. Point them to a song and you tell them why you
0: like it. Well, it, it, the song that I covered was just called Right Here. And it was just, it's this perspective from God saying, everywhere I go, you know, I know you're right here and while that's such a simple truth it's like when you've hit rock bottom and your label has dropped you and you have no money and you're going in debt and you you bet the farm on everything man i need to hear in that moment that god is right there with me you know what i'm saying i don't need to struggle to understand what you're trying to say to me so that those songs while they are trite and simple and basic there's sometimes you need that you know what i mean and music is like food where uh, there are times where I want some complex, gourmet, super ethnic type food, and there's sometimes I just want a freaking burger, man. Like, let me just bite into it and taste the goodness, and it's simple, you know what I mean? So, um, and 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 that's you know that's why one of the songs by Cutlass that I was torn with at the time was called you know, "Why Do You Run? Why Do You Hide?" It's from God's perspective. Um, and you so you
2: have it, that down in your book as a, a as just grabbing a burger.
0: To an extent, yeah. I think those songs, those are Grab A Burger songs, because you know what you're biting into, right? right 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 You know what that tastes like, right? And there's times where you just want comfort food. And to me, some of those songs are literally comfort food, because when you've hit a sucky situation. I don't want an esoteric abstract uh understanding of this this this. I just want to know someone's going to stand with me and go, "Dude, you are going to make it." You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And 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 a lot of my career was about that. But also, man, I toured with these guys. So like it was one thing to just know the music, it's another thing to like I'm living with them day in day out. All I toured with was rock bands. That was it.
2: So you're hanging out with Cutlass and Jeremy Camp and touring with them. And I do feel like we're yeah. in the same umbrella here. And when you call that yeah. grabbing a burger or comfort food, there are some people that yeah. don't like the sound of that. Um, and yeah. that's okay. So yeah. the reason that that works for you is because even more fundamental is that music is a package and a vessel to achieve a higher goal, though, right?
0: Yes, to an extent, yes. But again, to me, Stephen Christian redoing a, a Cure song like that's a pure just artistic song right mm-hmm. from a great guy with a great tone with a great voice right it's no different than how much i love the police you mm-hmm. know what i'm saying mm-hmm. like i i'm not necessarily relating to the content but you can't help but appreciate something done in excellence with a uniqueness to it so um
2: if you're making that but 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 you're saying you can make a simpler song for people that and here's another one where i think it maybe diverges a little bit but you're making sometimes within this world music for people who aren't the most avid fans of music, but they're people that all, that utilize and use and listen to music, but in a more passive way. Can you speak to that a little Absolutely. bit?
0: Absolutely. Oh yeah. Well, listen. That was a that was a hard part for me because I'm a MC. I wear a backpack. I do graffiti art. You know what I mean? I came up breakdancing. I came up in the hood and in the suburbs. Like, there's the art and the culture of hip hop, but I'm stuck in this CCM world in some tiny Baptist church in the middle of nowhere, because that's the basis of what this genre comes from, trying to dilute this into a way that they can relate to or connect with. And the thing was, it's like I would do these dumb throwaway songs that were literally just hidden tracks, right? Mm-hmm. It's some dumb thing about a Mountain Dew drink or something like that. <laughs> I roll in, I roll in, and then, and that's all they want me to do. <laughs> and I'm like, do you not hear this stuff that's over hilarious. here where I'm like pouring my heart and my guts and my, you know, creativity and my lyricism, they're like, no, we just want you to like do some two minute cheese ball song about a cheeseburger and a fry and a Coke. And I'm like, I'm at a crossroads because I'm like, dude, if I do this, this isn't really artistically what I want to do. But I, you know what I mean? But I'm like, OK, fine. I guess if they want cake, give them cake. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And that's when I started to understand like the underbelly of what the CCM market was, that it was like, you know, you had to appeal to this small town Um Midwestern, you know, youth group culture.
3: Hey everybody, it's Zach from Citizens. One problem that's continuously plagued us as a band is that we actually have too many fans. And so one of the things that we're trying to do this fall is go on tour, because once you hear us live, you probably will never listen to us again. If you live in or near Des Moines, Minneapolis, Chicago, Milwaukee, Fort Wayne, Totowa New Jersey, Washington, DC, Lynchburg, Virginia, Greenville, South Carolina, Knoxville, Tennessee, and Nashville, Tennessee, please go to wearecitizens.net, get your tickets. We just put out a new record called Fear and there's more coming. Whatever it takes to get you to stop listening. We do have the best fans in the world, but one band can't have all the best fans. So we got to get rid of a few, which is why we're bringing along with us Ghost Ship, The Eagle and Child, and Allie Page. Because once you listen to all of us, you'll probably never listen to music again. Go to wearecitizens.net and get your tickets today.
2: you tell me in your in your mind what's the distinction what's the difference in uh, solid state tooth and nail and BEC
0: well I mean BEC was running the run you know right in the middle it was tooth and nails attempt to get in that they had been pushed out of you know what I'm saying like OC supertones selling all those records getting no dub nominations you know what I'm saying they should have been you know given those those looks in the CCM market I think that's what BEC was it was the idea of going okay fine you know we'll play your game. Um, and that's why groups like, uh, you know, Cutlass or Jeremy Camp and eventually myself all found ourselves on BEC. Again, it was just the same 21 employees, whereas Solid State like that's way over to the other side. You know, what I'm saying like those groups maybe might, you know, flirt with the CCM industry, but they are off playing clubs and and they're going to be an alternative press magazine. You know what I mean? And Tooth and Nail is sort of that somewhere happy medium between the two in my opinion. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I would connect with all these guys in some way, shape, or fashion, probably less the solid-state guys. Um, but I... You know, and then and then there's Uprock, which is over here, which is like this attempt at doing Christian hip-hop, and it's just struggling.
2: What is the same about Tooth & Nail Solid State and BEC?
0: The, the same execution applies to all of them, meaning do records that are done, high-quality, but at a low cost that are done, you know, visually well, and that are, are allowing the artists to be themselves. You know what I'm saying? It's like equip people to be a 10 at what they're already a 10. So that was what I saw. And the funny thing was like, I would be working with guys that were solid state, you know, employees never once did they like give me the shaft because I'm this random white youth pastor kid from Florida doing Christian rap. There was never a distinction of well, I'm not going to work for you. Like I'm not connecting with your music. Like everybody worked equally hard, no matter who I dealt with, Interesting. on any aspect.
2: Now you know, in in this podcast, even we've covered that a decent amount to where there is, yeah, without a doubt, and there has been uh, over the years, in in every time period, I believe, an undercurrent of people who were snobbier and did not treat certain artists well. That's always existed in, in my view. You didn't ever feel that way at all.
0: Well maybe maybe I didn't know enough to know that and again I didn't necessarily oh I wasn't always working directly with the label I was working with the 1 A&R at Uprock to an extent but I'll be honest with you I think I was just such an anomaly that they couldn't even have a snobby opinion to me you know what I'm saying That's like, cool. that's good to hear I was I was the I wouldn't even say the black sheep I was like the adopted <laughs> you know kid <laughs> That comes for Thanksgiving dinner. It's like you can't even figure out exactly what I am. We're just gonna be nice to him because he just, mm-hmm. you know, is is doesn't fit the mold. But they couldn't deny. I mean, I was selling records. You know what I mean? My first album did a hundred thousand, second album did another hundred fifty thousand, you know, third album did a hundred fifty thousand. So I was moving units, which was never and it never happened. I was like one of three artists to ever break a hundred thousand in Christian hip hop, period.
2: Yeah, I think the hip hop thing is part of it, but you know, because if you're some band that's really cool indie cred it's easier to criticize another band that does the same yeah. a similar thing with similar instruments as you i think in in being in hip-hop you it's like yeah. oh that's different at least like it's less directly comparable yeah. to be snobby about and then on top of that you have an obviously real personality and come from where you come from and it's authentic yes. enough that it, and it's you know you're, you have a strong enough personality and you're comfortable with yourself in a way that i think tends to yes. cause people to accept you as you are
0: Yeah. And I wasn't looking for validation either. I wasn't looking for best friends at the label. I'm just like, do your job. That's it. That's all I care about. And granted, I had a manager at the time and she was probably dealing with most of that. So, you know, she would complain constantly. But, you know, I mean, like all everyone I dealt with was always cool, uh, but I did not need them to stroke my ego. You know what I mean? I'm like, that's I did not need that. I needed you just to send my single out. Give me some flats that I can sell. Make sure my music arrives on time, and we're good. So you're doing and business you know what? then? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like you know, make it happen.
2: Well, where does under now? Tell me about get back to that term underbelly, Christian music industry <laughs> underbelly. Now, 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 build that one in here.
0: I just, I didn't listen again. I grew up in Florida, right? I had never known anything but Florida. I didn't know that there was an enti- and in Florida is an anomaly in itself. Like the secular sacred divide is completely different. The understanding of mainstream versus Christian market is very different. We're not Bible Belt, so to speak. I didn't know there was a whole world where you can just tour youth groups. You know what I mean? I didn't know there's a whole world that will bring you out just to do one dumb song that has nothing to do with Jesus, right? I didn't understand any of this, but I'm like, okay, I, 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 I fell flat on my face on my first record. If this second record is connecting, far be it from me to bite the hand that feeds me. But also— to be honest with you, I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna build bridges. Like, and and there's a there's a lot of artistic pushback that I did behind the scenes. But my manager and my and my my producer was like, look, if you're willing to compromise here, down the road you'll do what you want to do. And and I was like, all right, fine. I'll smile on my pictures. All right, fine. I'll grow my hair out. All right, fine. I'll do a rap rock song. I don't even like rap rock, but I'll do it if that's what it takes. Like, I'll do it.
2: What rap rock song did you do?
0: Well, any of, like anything I did with Aaron was always like a rap rock thing, you know what I'm saying? And that was not my thing. I was like, I'm not into rage. I'm not into like Kid Rock. I don't. I think those things are like compromised. Now down the road, I began to appreciate it. But I'm like, get those guitars out of my beats, you know? <laughs> well.
2: I- <laughs> Um, you did the song with Aaron Sprinkle and Toby from Emory that is a rap rock song right. that sounds like yes. you no, know, it sounds like Aaron Sprinkle doing a Linkin Park song. And then to- I recorded those vocals yes. in my parents' garage yes. and, and uploaded them to Aaron. He called me can, and said, "Can you sing, can you get Toby to sing this?" And send it to me. Said, "Okay." And then uploaded it. Did that. And that sounds that song sounds like Linkin Park to me, right?
0: Can I tell you something about that song? Yeah, I was scared to death to put that track out. <laughs> I I'm telling you, I thought that song was going to ruin my career. I thought everybody was gonna hate it. I thought there's no way some dude screaming is going to work with me rapping. Like, I'm like, this is the worst possible fusion. I love Toby, I loved his heart, and if the irony was we never actually talked on the phone, it was all through Instant Messenger. I loved his heart, his depth, I love what he did, and I thought this song will ruin my career. And the irony was, it was, it was massive. Like, it was the first thing that I ever got spun on radio. It was, and guys that were like straight up hip hop heads, especially my DJ, who was like a Puerto Rican guy from, you know, Brooklyn, was like, dude, I love that song. I'm like, you like that song? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, of all the things I've done, this is the one you like. And I, and, and it just shows that I don't know. I, I I've never been the smartest. I was just willing to listen and try. I was willing to try and fail. And, um, that happened over and over and over. That's the only thing I could ever say about my career is that I was willing to try and fail.
2: Well, so that song is called Wake Up uh, from 2008, yeah. and it was nominated for a Dove Award. One of, am I, I right, 16 <laughs> Dove Awards you've been nominated for? A ton. One, two, three, four,
0: five, six, seven, eight, 9, 10, 11,
2: 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 nominations I've got
0: here. Yeah. It, at one <laughs> point, I had more Doves than anybody else. In the the genre
2: Okay, so another quick aside here If you don't know what the Dove Awards are They're the Christian equivalent to the Grammy Awards, of course And they hold a big conference and awards show every year in Nashville And here's a TV commercial for it Get ready for television's most inspiring
3: night of music
1: And the Dove Award goes to
3: The 41st Annual GMA Dove Awards Sunday, April 25th at 8:07 Central
0: it was getting to the point where I was like starting to feel guilty about winning because the you know, the Christian hip hop scene was starting to come up, Lecrae was starting to come up, and these guys were getting passed over. Just like I got passed over ten years before, and I'm like, This is the last thing I want to be is the CCM white boy youth group mm-hmm. rapper kid who's beating out all the black guys for a genre that, you know, I'm a yeah. guest in that house.
2: Did people make noise about that and think that was like Absolutely. really awful the Christian industry to finally get this Absolutely. white?
0: Absolutely. Look again. I, I came in you know, at a time where white guys doing hip-hop was very much an anomaly. I would generally be the only white dude at the mainstream thing. I was the only white guy at the, at the open mic. I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly black and Hispanic. So I was always very respectful to the perception, right? And obviously, white artists have a history of appropriating black culture and exploiting it. And I was like, no, this is not what I will be defined by. But I can't help who gravitates to me. Uh-huh. So here I come— I'm now dubbed the Eminem of Christian rap or whatever, and this undercurrent of backlash starts to happen. And now CCM's like, "Okay, you're our new guy. Here, have a Dove Award for a remix album." I'm like, "Come on, guys! Like, this is ridiculous!" Like, so
2: you 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 won an album of the year for KJ 52 remixed,
0: yes, which was I beating
2: won. out a bunch of other rappers who had original yes. stuff that were yes. not white. So that started exactly. to look bad, no matter how you you get. Get right.
0: And, yeah. and and it was literally when Lecrae was starting to come up and here it is. You know, I, I mean, it was like I can't I can't help that I won. And I wasn't going to like say screw everybody that voted for me. It was just me going, this is getting to be a little bit dangerous. And I actually won two blank double awards that year. They handed me two on accident. <laughs> I took them and I put Lecrae's name on them, and I mailed it to him. I said, here, these are the two double awards that you should have had and if you never get one just know that i recognize your art and that's actually one of the chapters in my book is about this this ccm industry and what it, what it meant to like all of a sudden be embraced and that was a, it was an odd time because all of a sudden bc was starting to get embraced mm-hmm. i won tooth and nail's first double award i won the first one and then 10 minutes later jeremy camp won so it was like i always thought that was the biggest slice of irony that a rapper wins the first tooth and nail double award and then jeremy camp wins the second one but that's when tooth and nail started getting like kind of accepted. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So and, 2003. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was a weird time.
2: And so you come from this background too, of growing up being, um, the way you put it, a minority. Let me, let me
0: clarify. I, I lived in Ybor city, which was straight up hood, you know, only white kid in the neighborhood, but I also lived with my mom in the suburbs. So I bounced back and forth and then summertime I'd go to North Michigan. So like I had every possible perspective you can imagine, but I wanted to be accepted by the the people that started this genre. So, like, it's like I'm looking for acceptance of my music from my peers, and my peers were black and brown in that respect. But like anything, as you get popular, you can't help but have a large white fan base. And <laughs> the, you know what I mean? Like, it is what it is. There's just more white people. So I'm now playing, uh, you know, all these major. Christian festivals, Christian tours. In fact, I even headlined the White Privilege Conference in 2002. Okay, this is way before white privilege was a thing. I get a show offer that says White Privilege Conference. I'm like, I'm not playing.
2: This sounds like a There's white a privilege conference thing. called the White Privilege Conference in 2002? There, it's
0: still, what is yep, it? This is this is way before it was cool to talk about you know being woke and all this stuff. But it was literally a conference about the concept of white privilege, Weird. and it was fully diverse. And they said, we want you to be like our gospel group. And I'm like, you want a white guy to headline the white privilege conference? A <laughs> white rapper. <laughs> I'm like, this is insane. And once I understood it, I'm like, okay, cool, I'll go do it. And it was in Iowa of all places. But the point is, is that I was I was highly aware of all these things. My youth group at the time that I had left, that I was, you know, was 99% black kids. Uh, you know, I just lived in a very diverse world that I always wanted to never be perceived as the guy that did not respect the culture, that was trying to appropriate the culture, and trying to exploit the culture. I swore I'd never be that guy.
2: Okay, so now we're going to fast forward to fill in the gaps to a time in the future when you are officially named by VH1 to have had right. one of the most 40 embarrassing <laughs> moments in hip-hop. And it's along the lines of what you just described as your fear. Yes. So
0: let's do yes. that. <laughs> let's do yes. the whole story. Great. Good times. Good times. <laughs> It's
2: obviously unavoidable that you're going to get the Eminem comparison here. You're winning the yes. double war. You know, you 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 enter the scene at the time where he explodes, and you're aware of the phenomenon of when there are Christian artists, they're often targeted, oh labeled, or even built to be the Christian yes. version of this. So clearly, yes. everybody knows that you were developed by a major label. Of, <laughs> you were you were grown in a lab. Ran through a program that copied Eminem, <laughs> and then you were manufactured by the corporate elites to then be the Christian Eminem, right? Is that how it happened?
0: Of course. Okay. I, I used to love those freaking those freaking <laughs> labeled things, and it would it would always be so inaccurate. And the funny thing is, I remember like the first time someone was like, "Oh, you're like, you know, this this Christian Slim Shady." I'm like, I, my album was out before his was. Like, how would I even copy them? You and had an it, album it before really- he did." Yeah. Like my first album was done in 98. His came out in 99. So I'm thinking like, how could I sit here and try to copy? But it didn't matter. Mine dropped in 2000. And it really did not matter when you're talking about, again, the church world. Sure. They just, they just were like, if you like A, here's B. Right. And so I spent like the first year trying to fight it. And then I said, you know what, look, if that helps you, you know, in some way, shape or fashion, then far be it for me to fight it. You know, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And, and and keep it moving. And that's really where Deer Slim came out of. I didn't think he'd hear it. I didn't know he'd get a copy of it. I didn't know I'd talk to his ex-wife. I didn't know I'd wind up on TRL. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, and it's funny. There's a Brandon story in that because, you know, at the time, Tooth & Nail had a connection with MTV2. So they said, we're going to do the Deer Slim video. We'll send it to MTV2. MTV2 said, we're going to consider it. And then we all forget about it. A month goes by. And literally, Brandon gets a call from MTV out of nowhere. I'm in Canada, of all places. And they said, we're playing it tomorrow on TRL, and we're going to make it controversial. Wow. Like, they told them that. Well, and they did.
2: They, what was the, When you wrote exactly the song, what, what was your intent?
0: Honestly, I was just doing what rappers do. Like, it's like, you got something on your mind, you talk about it. It's just a stream of consciousness. I took what was done in the mixtape world. The mixtape world was like, if you wanted to talk to somebody... Um, if you wanted to talk to somebody in the mixtape world, or in the in the hip hop world, you took their beat and you rapped to them. Like that was a thing. So I was taking the idea of Stan like you would do on a mixtape and I'm rhyming directly to him and just saying what I wanted to say. Not in an abrasive way or an obnoxious way, but this is what I got to say.
1: Yeah, is Slim, I never wrote you or been calling. Yeah. My name ain't Stan, son. Nah, we never met him. Okay. My name's KJ. Let me begin by introducing now myself to you and these very reasons I'll be writing. Why well, I took the time in, the who and where and why, and the purpose of my verse and the reasons I'm reciting. What I hope you're learning from the truth, I pray you find it. And every word I'm writing down upon the dotted lines. And see, I heard your first album it's called Infinite. I heard it. I shook my head, cause nowadays you sounded different. different. What drove you take your whole persona and be flipping it now? What makes a man totally changed i ain't getting it. Get it see what you sick again, booed when you was ripping it and sick and never have a dough and you want to put an end to it with well, goods all kinds of dough plus all kinds of flow Good, not the gain the world of fans but self, the feel i soul.
2: so you're kind of like acknowledging the comparison there and getting ahead of it in a way
0: i wish i could tell you that i was that intelligent and that smart at 27 I just was writing a song, and I wrote it at like 2 in the morning, and that was literally it. I didn't even think I was going to put it out. I just did it at a show, and people lost their minds. And so when I got the deal with Tooth & Nail, I'm like, well, it's got to go on this first album. You know what I mean? It's garnering too much reaction. But, I mean, look, it, it, it went sideways. I mean, TRL took it, made it controversial, VH1. What, how did they make it controversial? What was the- they only played one minute of it. And they said that I was dissing Eminem and they only skewed the part that made it sound that way. There was no mention of this is a guy who's praying for him. This is a guy who's a Christian. It was none of that. It was just like, this guy's a hater. He's going after Eminem. What? You be the judge. Here's this video. Boom. And then they cut it off. So it's like, Mm -hmm. like, and it came out of left field 300%. Like I'm just literally stuck in a. In a car in Canada, listening to my wife hold it up to the t- TV set. Oh, no.
2: Oh, no. You know
0: what I mean? Yeah. And I'm like, what? That's not even the song. Like, come on. You know, like, and then getting death threats over it and getting, like, this massive backlash. Because I, I started getting backlash from the Christian rap industry where these guys are like, you're making us look bad. You know, you're doing this for, for attention. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, because you
2: made other Christian rappers. Now Christian rappers look bad because of what you did. Like, as a whole. You know, I'm say. sure...
0: I'm sure some of it had to do with jealousy. I'm sure some of it had to do with misconception. I mean, look, rappers are sensitive like you would not even believe. Like, you know. So, I was getting Christian rappers writing diss songs about me. I was getting mainstream rappers writing diss songs about me. I'm getting dragged through the mud, you know, in the in literally the highest level of media you could imagine. I mean, MTV's TRL, there was nothing bigger than that. No. You know, and all the while I'm just trying to like get out of this apartment that I'm living in and hopefully like pay my bills this month. You know, off a song I wrote on a whim.
2: And then when the VH1 show is even even worse?
0: Right. And that's what's funny because, again, every time I thought this was over, something else would happen. So, like, it was, like, years later. Years later, VH1 puts out the 40 least hip-hop moments. And (laughs) I step off a plane. I step off a plane, and my friend leaves me a voice. I'm like, yo, man, they're doing you dirty, man. And he just hangs up. I'm like, what? He's... And basically what they said was, you know, I was one of the least hip hop moments for simply praying for Eminem. And, you know, again, I'm like, how do they even know I'm on their radar? Like, that's what was mind blowing. So then like, again, another couple years go by. I talked to Eminem's ex-wife while she's in jail. Another couple years go by. He writes a response, at least in my opinion, it seemed like a response. What is that? Uh, He had a verse called, Be Careful What You Wish For, where he talks about, you know, Pray, uh, a fan who had been praying for him has been weighing on his mind heavy and he basically just was like, you know, I appreciate it uh, but I already got God on my side you know what I'm saying and I can't guarantee that's about me but it really sounds like it, you know what I
1: mean I got a letter from a He's been praying for me every day, and for some reason, it's been weighing on my mind heavy. Because I don't read every letter I get, but something told me to go ahead and open it. But why would someone pray for you when they don't know you? You didn't pray for me when I was local, and as a lady's vocals, I think of all the shit I had to go through just to get to where I'm at. I've already told you at least a thousand times in these rhymes. I appreciate the prayer, but I've already. Got I mean,
0: that's but again, side. that's it's almost eight years after I wrote the song. Every time I thought this chapter was over, it's like some other thing out of left field would happen.
2: Yeah, it's hard, you know, when you get tagged as a thing. You know, you you spend your whole time trying to create an identity and have a splash and be unique. And sometimes the thing that you get tagged with or is unique about you or easiest to explain you with is not something that you that you want or something that unfolds in an unfortunate way like
0: that. That is three hundred percent accurate.
2: But is it is the Eminem comparison in a way helpful as a whole? Like if there were no Eminem. Would you be better or worse
0: off? No, there's no question. My success is linked to his success because that's the other thing I learned. Look, I'm just a hungry young white kid, who wants to rap, and loves Jesus, and like is from the suburbs, the hood, and the rural part of Michigan. <laughs> I didn't know any of this was going on. I didn't know being this comparison would help, but I can't help but say the thing that I, as an artist would be irritating to me was also the thing that helped me. It's probably what's maintained me for all these years. You know what I mean? Years later. I mean, I don't deal with those comparisons now, but initially, you know, it's a weird industry where it's almost all based on if you like A, here's B.
2: Yep. Yep.
0: You can't you can't necessarily be art for art's sake. I mean, you can, but all the rappers I knew that were doing that were ended up, you know, getting dropped or
2: quitting. So what else is it like over on the BEC side of life? Uh, what are the stereotypes that are true about the Christian industry that that you would confirm that that people suspect from the outside or or deny either. One. I mean,
0: listen, I got into it with very pure motives, like very like, you know, again, I left the church world to do the music. So, but also, I, I'd seen so much bad things in the church world that I was at least smart enough to know. I, I used to think the CCM industry had these very lofty goals. And then I just realized that it's like anything. There are people with very pure motives doing it for very good reasons. They're very authentic and they're very good people. And there's complete charlatans that will take you for everything you have. And, and I just realized it's no different than any other anything else. Meaning I also didn't expect much, but I also didn't lower my expectations. I was just realistic. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And the thing that I noticed about Tooth and Nail was interesting because like you go to tooth and nail and like half the staff is outside smoking cigarettes and they're at the bar and they're like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know what I mean? Like some of these dudes are not just straight up, not Christians at all. And, and probably part of the dogmatic side of me thought like, Oh, this is a problem. Like this is not right. Over time I realized that most of my dogma over stuff had no scriptural basis. It was just church churchianity that had been drilled into my skull. And if this guy who got hired in the mail order, who is a straight-up atheist, who smoke, chain smokes constantly and might be borderline alcoholic, cool, let's go hang out, man. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I'd rather be your friend and know where you stand than someone who's faking the funk. You know what I mean? So like I just stopped putting unrealistic expectations on anything, and I realized the only person I really could control was myself, and that was it. And I'll be honest with you. I connected with the guys from the tooth and nail world, and that world way more than I did with the Christian rap scene. And even the super pop CCM AC scene, I didn't connect with that either.
2: But are some of those people you know? fake like people are afraid of? Some of the big, large artists, are they full of it that people don't
0: know? Absolutely. 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 Just no different than Is anywhere else. Is that okay? Else?
2: And why don't we say their names? What, what, where are we at with that? Like, Why don't we explain that to people, that there's charlatans there?
0: Uh, I think, well, I think that here's the difference. I think back then, before the advent of social media, uh, everything could be hidden way better, right? Mm -hmm. So now I think people's true character comes through sooner or later, right? So maybe a, this is a totally different thing, but maybe a uh, Mark Driscoll from Mars Hill Church could have existed underneath the radar and gotten away with some of those things that eventually took him down and took the church down. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas now we live in a hyper, you know, all eyes are on you sooner or later, they're going to find out what you did. You get what I'm saying? Well, it, so maybe. Anyone that, you, <laughs> no, you don't think so? Okay. Well, it puts maybe us in I'm the wrong. middle,
2: though, because now people are going to be better than ever at hiding certain things. And on the other hand, there's this really gray area where it's more subtle. I well, think. If you care to here, know, I think you can see who's faking who's not.
0: Here's what I realized. I just knew that sooner or later, it all caught up to you. Mm-hmm. Whether it was out in the public or whether it was not, if you're burning people for money, if you are, you know— saying one thing, but living something else, it just caught up to you sooner or later. It's like, I don't have to drop a dime on you, man. You drop a dime on yourself sooner or later.
2: Yep. No, you know what I mean, so I, sure.
0: I just, I just got to a point where I didn't really care. It's like, you know what, if you're banging chicks after the show, that's on you. You sooner or later, one of them's going to get pregnant and you're going to have to deal with the repercussions <laughs> of what you did. Yeah. That's just what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. So do I really need to expose you? Nah, you're going to expose yourself sooner or later. I'm better off keeping all my energy and my bandwidth on myself and just maintaining integrity you know and i feel like that's what's kept me for 20 years
2: uh, longevity is you know a I mean? big deal yeah you're right you you'd have i mean there's plenty of opportunity for people to make mistakes and then come out or let their own mistakes just take them down on a practical level yes so would you say yes. then would you advocate on the other side and you can name names here who are the really good individuals that are making the really great people doing the right things for the right reasons that everybody would be happy to know them deep down and they would be either pleasantly surprised or, or verified that these are great people. And this just happens to be the music and uh, you know calling that they're up to.
0: Well, it's weird. Like I played a show with Jeremy Camp, like literally a couple weeks ago, and I have not seen this guy in a couple years. You know what I mean? And again, we both had sort of the same inception and we played a show together. I was the opener or whatever. And it was like no different than when I met him back in the day. You know what I mean? Like he still had the same sort of vision, same sort of heart. Nothing had really changed right there. I'll be honest with you. A lot of the guys that I came with, they're just not around anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I don't even know if I can verify anybody because most of them are gone. You know what I mean? So I, I will say a guy like Toby, you know, Toby McKeon is what I'm talking about. Toby Mack from DC mm-hmm. talk has sort of, has really done well to, to maintain the same uh, sort of level of what he does. Um, uh, uh, so I found an authentic authenticity there. Um, but I'll be honest with you, man, for the last two, three years of living the indie life, I've just really been out of that scene. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I don't really mess with anybody. Um, I'm just busy doing what I do and being who I am.
2: I hear you, and I want to talk about being independent because that is such—I mean, that's definitely the thread here and where I want to end. Yes. Even the BEC side and the Christian side over there, it seems, though, that you—again, you have all the same things that identify in all the other stories, but just in a different kind of world. You have the struggling, yes. the sleeping on floors, the not making money, the trying to make an impact, yes. to try to do things your own way, to cut against the way it was supposed to be done, to feel like an outsider— yes to make progress, to manage your own career, just you know, all these things really do sound the same. You even have in there where you're not Christian enough and too Christian and you had a big run in with assemblies of God. And to me, that yeah. <laughs> that that even really screams this whole thing. It's like people love to divide over the smallest yes. things when they're so the yes. same. And I noticed that yes. all in music and in all the Christian and post Christian groups are almost the exact same and they come from the same place. Yes. And they identify yep. themselves mainly as where they divide. I find that so bizarre. But here you go, Christian rapper, sixteen Dove Award nominations. Tell me yes. about that. For what is that with you and Assemblies of God? I found that. Oh worse. man!
0: So so I I got booked. I was supposed to be there about ten thousand kids. I went in. I started doing my thing, and essentially what happened was Gabriel Swaggart, the son of Jimmy, grandson of Jimmy Swaggart, took the footage, chopped it up, and basically said. This is why the Assemblies of God has lost their focus. He preached an entire message about me, you name it. And I chose in that moment, rather than going on the offensive with him, as I reached out to him directly, and I had a conversation. And we never really agreed on anything. We just had to eventually agree to disagree. Well, what is his uh, claim? Then, like, what
2: bothered him about what you were doing he, at the he, Assemblies of well, God one, event? I mean,
0: at the core of it, he was saying that rap was demonic to begin with. So, oh. rap was demonic. So, I was, you know, doomed to failure. But the fact that I had a couple little snippets of like secular music that I was using as like a cutaway thing, this was why my methods were, you know, ungodly. And that's not of God. And I just found it was way easier to reason with him from the scriptures versus like trying to hash it out online. And we just had to agree to disagree. I just thought this was a teachable moment because you can flash forward seven years now. And he's a very different guy. You know, like, man, I'm, I'm in a different place now. He kind of was like, we agree on more than you think. I pull, He actually ended up pulling down his message, uh, taking it off the Internet after our conversation. So the whole point of that thing was, here's someone who basically labels me as completely demonic, completely ungodly. And rather than me trying to bang back publicly, I said, "Let's just talk about this one-on-one." Mm-hmm. And while we never had a great resolution, we at least had a mutual respect. And with that, eventually came reconciliation years down the road. But these are the things people don't see; they just want—they just want drama. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but I had, you know, constantly had to deal with people that misunderstood me. And I found it was just better to talk to them one-on-one and it, it tended to at the very least I felt like oh my on oh my conscience I did it the right way
2: I like that, uh, approach. but yeah
0: but you would think that would be a, you know it's you know kind of biblical God forbid we actually do it that way. That's not what happens in in, in hip-hop. Hip-hop is like, you did something wrong, I don't like you, I write a song about you yeah, I'm gonna diss, diss the crap out of you.
2: So being independent now, how do you like it and what enabled it? Is it something you always would have wanted to be when it was technologically or marketplace possible, or is it an unfortunate thing to have to be independent? How do you think of that?
0: I, I, honestly, in 2007, I saw the writing on the wall, and I started behaving. Even though I still signed to Tooth & Nail, I started behaving as, a, as an independent artist. You know, and, and I noticed little by little, you know, Tooth & Nail was doing less and less and less and less, and they had less money to do stuff, and you know, eventually they end up getting sold. So I'm like, look, I better take take the reins right now and make sure my fall is is padded, um, so I can do that. You know, five, ten years down the road. And I'll be honest with you, I'm making more money now. I have infinite more creative control. I can literally do whatever I want to do, and the fans fund it. You know, I've ran three or four different crowdfunding, all funded anywhere between 100 to 200 percent. I've released a documentary, a book. I've released five different projects. You know, all in the span of two years, and I literally can do whatever I want to do. Yeah, and it's 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 a beautiful thing. It's what every artist strives. It's what every artist strives to do. But rappers don't think like that. Like this is this is a very DIY indie alternative thing. And I'll be honest, maybe I learned some of that from the Tooth and Nail world.
2: Yes, no doubt. Well, hip hop has such a neat uh, interface with the rest of of the music world and culture. And it's got this yes. combination of being DIY and SoundCloud rappers and hustling their CDs yes. and stuff. I know you know that. That's how I think of you yes. as the guy in the 90s pushing CDs at the mall, probably. Yes. Um, but yes. that's what I picture in my head, at least. But th- there's that <laughs> s- always a big DIY side of hip-hop. But also, they like yes. uh, hip-hop also has this really bling-bling and high money and getting taken care yes. of and being the artist and the rock star thing, too, but in a different way. So, But, you know, yes. there's, it, it's the real – the tension that's, that's really exciting about indie bands and rap and everything is the tension between being a rock star and being a real dude and that you can cross over is kind of what – the fact that you can be a nobody and then become a somebody but then keep it real, that's never really existed before. And that's what's so cool you, about the DIY yep. scenes is you can uh, – it's just kind of up to you. I mean, you can be a small-time band and act like a rock star or, or not, and maybe it's cool if you do. Maybe it's not. But, you know, to be able to cross through those boundaries is uh, something that hip-hop does in a unique way, I think.
0: Yeah, and hip-hop is great at eating itself alive. Like, they do a really a lot of dumb stuff that I learned from their mistakes. And, and I always just try to make myself a student. So, like, um, you know, watching what those, you know, these... Tooth & Nail Solid State guys and their intense connection with their fan base Mm -hmm. uh, I'm like I've got to learn from something there like there's something that they're doing that's right that they may not sell as much but these bands bought everything they have they sell everything they have they're passionate about every bit of the lyrics I'm like I gotta figure out how to infuse that and so yeah man like I'm I'm a product of that Tooth & Nail culture on so many levels
1: Yo yo I'm like Water and some bloody water, I'm coming nicely with the vibe. Not giving praise to the eternal jaja ja, eternal Father. Flowing in the living water, your rhymes is caca My name is Jonathan Moore from Salisbury, Maryland. I'm a labeled member in my favorite Tooth & Nail band of all time, the tie between Project 86 and Dead Poetic. Matt Carter is our host. Editing and sound design by Melanie Studley. Story by Matt Carter. Production manager is Reva Hanson. Our executive producer is Brandon Ebel. Special thanks to Adam Scatula, Tyson Paoletti, and Marshall Primus at Tooth & Nail Records.
0: This podcast is made possible by members of the label community on Pat- Patreon. If you are interested
1: in becoming a title sponsor for your band, brand, or nonprofit, find us on Patreon at
3: backslash label. <laughs>